Isaiah chapter 64, if you will. Isaiah 64. I want us to talk this morning about a message that I see in here, and I pray that God will bring it forth, about something that would apply to us as a people as well as it applied to the day in which this was spoken. There's a message here that the prophet gives us, that God gives us through this prophet, and it has to do about something we need to do when we look around us and see that things aren't well, whether there are things nationally or globally or things personally or things in the church or in your home, whatever, when you see things are not as they should be and there's not much of a reaction to that or response to God, I think this message has to do with us laying hold of God for his visitation. When God visits people, we call it revival. When God meets with his people, when he does something, it's what we have often termed revival because things really do turn around and change. Now, in this chapter, it really begins at the end of chapter 63 in verse 17, because the condition that the prophet is talking about is the condition of the people and the woe that is on the land. We're not doing well. We have done well. This is our land, and we enjoyed it for a while, but now this is going on, and that's going on. Well, he said, verse 18, the people of thy holiness have possessed this land but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. And he begins in verse 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might flow at thy presence. That's when the melting fire burneth, as fire causeth the water to boil, to make thy name known in thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. Oh, that you would do that. When thou didst terrible things, awesome things, awesome things. When thou didst awesome things, which we looked not for, you came down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. Now, I think in the first three verses here, we get a picture of what seems to be the great need amongst these people that God would come down and interfere and intervene in the affairs of man. Not the world's systems, but God's people. For it seems they're the ones that this is all concentrated on or all concerned about. That God's people need a visitation. Now, could that ever be possible in a modern era like we're in now? Now, I'm asking you as the people of God, would it ever be that our heart, based on how we see things, what's going on and what bothers us, would we ever desire that God would do something like this? Oh, that God would come into a meeting and the Shekinah glory would envelop us and have the effect of if when God came down to the mountains and they melted and the, the waters boiled at his presence and the mountains flowed and everything just seems to stand still because we cannot get away from the fact that God is here. I wonder if that would affect us spiritually. Like today, if right now while I'm speaking, if God just shut my mouth and something that we have never ever known in our lives, maybe heard of, maybe somebody talked about once, but we've never known it, and God just came whew, down in this place. Is it possible that we might be affected by it? Would we change a little bit for a little while anyway? I think so. We would be chattering about it, talking about it, wondering about it for quite a while. Because if good things came out of that, then we would see, well, that's what we've been needing a long time. We've needed for God to come in our midst. We're learning to live with little. We're learning to live with as they were. 
We're learning to live oppressed. We're learning to live under the authority of another nation. We're learning to live without what God gave us that somebody has taken and we've given it up. We've learned to live that way and we just sort of do our best and hope it works. And the prophet thinking probably along these lines, that's not the way God intended for us to live. Our lives are to be consumed with serving God. And yet, though we've heard that, we sing songs about it, we have read multiplied verses in the Bible in our lifetime about it, and yet the thing that conquers us and really rules us are the the systems of man, the ways of the world, things, dreams, hopes, aspirations, and church has become something we do. It's the right thing to do. We should. Just like in these days, they would go to the temple when they did and offer their sacrifices, but it was not with their hearts. Because he said earlier in chapter 29 and 30, you, you know, your heart's not in what you're doing. And so the prophet here, in referencing that, that kind of atmosphere attitude, he says, I wish God would come down like days of old when the mountains shook and there was smoke on the mountains and the earth trembled before him and, and trumpets were blaring and, and the people stood back with their eyes open going, oh, what's going on? Oh, God. Oh, would he would do that again. Would that he would do that again. Now, let's go on. Verse 5. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art angry, for we have sinned, and we continue in our sins, and shall we thus be saved? That's the way many translate that. Not all of them translate it that way, but I think that's what he's saying. We have sinned. You meet with those that try. You meet with those that are putting their heart and soul in what they're doing. The man who works righteousness, who refuses to do wrong, but endeavors to learn right and then do right, that's who you meet with, Lord. But look at us. Look at us. We have sinned and we continue in our sins. How can we be saved? How can we truly enjoy salvation if we just sin and don't do anything about it, except, well, I shouldn't have done that. Well, you know, I, I know, I know, I, you know. Isn't this how people often deal with sin? Yeah, I know, I, I mean, but come on now, who's perfect? Don't point your finger at me, you're guilty too. That way you can keep doing what you're doing. We dismiss ourselves. Bad things happen. Ugly things happen. Well, you know, I'm, you know, I know I shouldn't do, I shouldn't have said that, I know, but... You know how it is. Sometimes you have one of those days and you we make light of it. We just casually set it aside. Life becomes somewhat casual. Yeah, nothing is a big deal. I guess maybe God is so good and so wonderful that surely he wouldn't send his wrath on somebody that well, I'm not exactly bad. I'm, I may have, I mean, there's a lot of good, but surely I'm not going to lose everything because of that. And then the question hits us sometime. When I get right down to it, I wonder if I'm lukewarm. I wonder if I've learned enough good that I think I'm good enough. I wonder if I'm lukewarm. I wonder if, if I'm not really dealing with myself. Maybe as a church, we're really not dealing with ways that we're getting adjusted to, or the nation here, we're really not dealing with ourselves and our problem. We're not calling on the Lord. We're just saying, well, you know, God's been good. He'll take care of this. Maybe that's all wrong. Maybe there's something here that I'm not seeing, right? Maybe there's something. Well, let's go on. Let's read verse 6. The prophet said, we are all as an unclean thing. Well, that's pretty strong, isn't it? I don't know if I want to go to that church. I don't know if I got up this morning to come and listen to that. <laughs> what did he say? We're all as an unclean thing. Who? All of us. 
and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. We're unclean. Our righteousness amounts to, he was saying, our righteousness amounts to a formal acknowledging of truth. Yes, God said, yes, yes, we are here. Thy loving, the joy of the Lord. Yes, yes. The participation in right things we do. Don't we sing? Don't we sing? Don't we attend? And you get up this morning and come to church? I mean, you didn't find any eggs this morning. There just wasn't enough to go around. So Easter eggs, I guess they call them. You came here. You've been singing, didn't you? You participate in some way, won't you? We may not want to admit it. Maybe I don't want to admit it. But our righteousness could be a righteous routine, a formal routine of life. We are adding this kind of activity to our busy lives, and we're not really bothered so much by shallowness or ineptness spiritually, or we're really not bothered by this or that. Maybe we can still look back to the early days when, oh, when God visited us. You know my story from 100 years ago. And it was like a birth took place. And everything was like the spring. It was green and it was fresh and it was growing and it was throbbing and it was exciting. And yet, folks say, well, it can't stay that way. It can't stay like that. But on the other hand, in Psalms 1, it says that he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water whose Leaf shall not fade, and he'll bear his fruit in his season. It'll always be green. Is that possible? Amen. Always green. And yet he said here, we all do fade like a leaf. We once were green, we're turning brown. All we got is, and I'm saying editorially we, I'm the message here, the people that it refers to, all we have are memories of the good times and hopefully that sustains us today. And yet today, it seems like the rivers of living water have turned into a trickle and we're afraid there's a swamp just ahead where there's nothing moving. It's just dead water and it's yucky. Oh, it's water. It's water, they say. Oh, it's water. We got water. But there's more to life than just a song, a meeting, reading your Bible, being in a prayer meeting, or giving. There is something that a man is to enter into, a life, a personal life with God. I think it's called a secret place, a place of communion, a place where consecration continues to take place, gripping a man's heart and a man's affections for God and for the ways of God. This is the way it should be. I believe when God moves and God visits people, he brings us into that, a convicted life, a life in which anything that's not right bothers you. And when it bothers you, you have this urge and desire to do something about it and not just let it be and not compare yourself with other people. Say, well, I'm no different than other people are. And yet when you look at yourself in that mirror of the word, you don't see. You can tell others you do, but you know in your heart, your conscience bears witness. This is something you can't change. This is what's in you that declares the lawfulness or the rightness or the wrongness of your life. It's your conscience. And yet you look in the mirror of the word, and that cold, clammy thought pops in your mind. You're lukewarm. You're kidding yourself. You think you're as good as other people or you're no worse than some people are and you know you're around good people and you're really not, a, you're just lukewarm because the pop is gone. The zeal is gone. The urge and the desire is gone. 
To be like Jesus is not there like it years ago was when you tried so hard to do right and think right and be around right and learn right. And things happen. Said so here. In this time of Israel's history, they were letting go with devotion. They were letting go with commitment to God and his ways. They relaxed their convictions. They begin to flirt with idols and idol worshipers. And the moment they begin to get their eyes off of God and devote themselves to other things in life besides God, that God took the heads down. Listen to this. Verse 5. Thou meetest with him that worketh righteousness, with those that remember you and your ways. And then notice these words, Behold, thou art wroth. Now, wroth means angry. It's used over and over again in the Bible of how God responds to his people, us, people like us. There are things, and you know this is true, there are things that we choose to do that makes God angry. God's anger is not a thing you want to court. Our God is a consuming fire, which has to do with the ultimate judgment when a man just turns away from God. Yes, he knows you go to church. Yes, he knows you had that moment sitting on daddy's lap or kneeling at the church. And yes, he knows, he knows, and he knows how you tried and witnessed and passed out tracts. He knows all of that. He also knows when you let things slide and slip. When you begin to ease up that walk of conviction, he knows. He was telling these people about it. He said, you're living in iniquity. You're living lawless. You're not paying attention. You're letting things slide. And when things begin to slide, you begin to lose that edge. When you begin to lose that edge, then the devil comes in. And then you begin to think, what's going on? Why are we so dead? Because the opening has been made for the enemy, and he comes in. He comes in to do whatever he does. Then verse 7, yet in spite of this, and here's what I want to talk about today. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hath consumed us because of our iniquities. Now, what is he saying? I don't know how you read that, but I wonder how you read that. In light of what I just said, the choice the people had made that had brought on the condition they were living in, God was angry, and the Bible said he hid his face from them. Face meaning his presence, his gracious presence, the presence from which comes grace, favor, blessing. He said he had hid himself from these people. They couldn't find him. He wasn't in their thoughts anymore. They couldn't get down and get where they used to be. Because God is gone. He's not there. Not with them. No one seemed to be bothered about what was going on. It seems like in the nation there, nobody was concerned about the condition the country was in. In the home, you're not concerned about the condition your family is in. Husband, wife. You're not concerned about... Youngsters, how you're acting in response to honoring your parents by disobeying and disregarding. Are you aware of what you're doing? All that trash that you allow in your life? Mom and dad, or how about in the church? When the church just simply becomes a non-issue with you, with me, with us. What is he saying? I mean, how do you read that? What should bother us? Should it bother us if there is a decline spiritually in our lives? If we find ourselves using bad words where we used to never use them? They've come back. Movies that come back and ugly, nasty stuff comes back and you dismiss yourself because, oh, come on. Should that ever bother us? If you tell me that's not an open door to the devil, then you don't know what you're talking about. And when the devil comes in a door, things change. Just like when God visits people, things change. Well, when the devil comes in and he's allowed in, things change. 
There's a decline. There's a less than it should be. There is a less than it once was. There is a lack of joy and exuberance and worship and praise. It's not there. It was there. It has been there. There's a place for that, but it's not there. And it doesn't bother me, we say. Now, it does bother me. If I said to you, how many of you this morning really let go and worship God? Now, I would imagine if you were honest, you would say, well, I didn't. Have you ever? Oh, I remember one time I did. Oh, man, we had a me. Woo! What happened? Where did he go? Are we only required to go, whoo, every decade, once a decade? Or is something kind of sliding backwards instead of going forward? Is the problem me? I look at myself in the mirror. Now, again, I'm speaking editorial at me, meaning you too. I look at me in the mirror and I ask myself, in light of 30, 40, 50 years of learning, what are you doing with it? Is God honored by all of this participation in service, in listening to sermons, tidy little things, nice little meetings, clean environment, good people, happy people, get along with people, nothing. Would that ever be a cause of alarm if it was like I said, if it was like that? Because in the nation here, the prophet was saying, God, look at your people, Lord. Look at them. They're all unclean. Their right ways are like filthy rags. I will not define that. But that's what they're like. Their iniquities, Lord, their self-serving lives are just carried them all away. They're lawless. They're committed to nothing but themselves. Oh, God, you should come down and rend the heavens and visit. We need a revival. Now, could something like that ever be true? In the 21st century, could something like this be? Could it ever be that God would look at his people and say, what's wrong with you all? Let me read one. Let me just read one. I've already got it picked out. This is Ezekiel 22 and verse 30. And I sought for a man among them having described in chapter 22 the terrible, terrible conditions that God saw amongst his people. I'd almost want to read that, but I'm trying not to. I'm going to read one. In Ezekiel 22, verse 26, he said, Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the clean and the unclean. They have hid their eyes from my Sabbath, and I am profaned among them. That is, nobody seems to be interested in what I'm doing. They turn away from what I want. They do something else. I am profaned among them. He said, the princes in the midst of her, like these false prophets, tearing the prey to get dishonest gain. The whole meeting's about money or building. Building or money or me. Me, money, and building. The people have used oppression and exercised robbery, have vexed the poor and the needy. They have wrongfully oppressed the stranger. And God said, and I sought for a man among them who should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land. And I couldn't find anybody. Just like Isaiah, our text said, oh, that there was one who would stir up themselves and take hold of God. Just one. 
Well, let me read something just four or five pages from Isaiah 64 in Jeremiah chapter 5. I mean, this is throughout the scripture. I just pick a couple of them. Jeremiah 5 and verse 1, run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and know and seek in the broad places thereof. If you can find a man, if there be any that exerciseth judgment and seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. I will pardon it. If there is one, seek, go look. Look amongst you who is pleading with God for desolate situations. Find one, he said. Find one who is so concerned about the condition of the nation, knowing that if we stay like this, God will judge us. It won't be good. It won't be pretty. He said, go and see if you can find one out there. He said in Ezekiel 22, I sought for one. I couldn't find one, he said, so I judged the land. Do you suppose all those people had to come to that? Couldn't they have done what was right and escaped that? Of course. God isn't looking for somebody to judge. God's looking for his people to bless them. But he's not going to bless his people when his people are living like Isaiah 64, Ezekiel 22, or Jeremiah 5, or through the book of Jeremiah. There's no blessing for that. All there is is woe and wonder. There's no blessing. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to keep reading. We look around today in our country, in our world. One of the most vulgar, worthless, bad things that has ever happened in civilization is abortion. I don't have a stick with a sign on it to carry. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm not a political activist, never will be. I do my work on my knees. But I think the idea of a country, a government, passing a law, okaying abortion in the hands of the educated medical deities of this world, I think it's one of the worst things that could ever happen in civilization, and it's happened in our country. And we're getting used to it. There was a time we were appalled at it. Now, if you say much about it, you have to argue with somebody. And yet it's happening right as I speak. We have immorality in the church. We have to dismiss people from our church far too much if we did it once in a lifetime for immorality. Foolishness, sinful behavior. I hear stories of our young folks and some of the escapades that take place in your apartments, homes. Some of the stories that get back to me, I don't know if they're true. I wasn't there. I think, how can these young folks glow in their little Sunday morning faces and then live like that? And how can they do that? How can they drink? How can they run around and act like heathens calling themselves Christians? Does it happen? Can what I just said happen in a church? There are churches in which people live together. They're not saved. They're not going to say anything about them except, come on now. Come on now. Y'all shouldn't do that. Come on now. That is a little slap on the wrist in a little friendly place, just a little formal, righteous setting. We are the people of God. Look at what we do. Look at all the things we've built and done for God. And yet you look at the people, they're consumed with the world. They're consumed with the things of this world. They have far, far more interest in basketball than they do God. They have far more passion. They have more feelings for sports than they do God. They're far more likely to to spend money they don't have and go places they don't need to go for a sporting event than they ever would to support a need in the church because that's their God. That becomes the idol. That's what you live for. And so 
in calling this out and speaking about this, we look around and we think, you know, things are really not all that well. I mean, who's frustrated by all of Who's bothered by all of this? You preach on something, it's disregarded. I made a little joke the other day with Bonnie. She don't like this when I do this. But I say something, and she said, well, I didn't hear what you said. I said, well, it's not Wednesday night. You act like Wednesday night, you're not listening. Well, I think people maybe do listen. I assume they do. I talk. I, go, I can't grab an ear and put it in the ear like that. I just have to talk. But, but, we're living in a time in which there's just so much wrong that people aren't bothered by. Who in the church is dealing with it? Whose heart is broken because of this? Who sees stuff in the world and just said, oh, God, I don't know that I can change all those things in the world, but I can appeal to God. Look at all the trash that's on TV. Look at how many times parents have brought a movie home and their kids to watch it, and those four-letter words are used in there. And when those kids ask their friends what that word means, and they're introduced to something that is being described by their kids because their parents opened it up to them. And they realize that a lot of kids are doing this now. I won't even use the words they use to describe what they pass out to kids a day in school because they're so sexually active. Like there's no shame anymore. And who blushes? Like Jeremiah 6. In Jeremiah 6 and verse 15, he says, my people don't know how to blush. They don't go, oh, my goodness. They don't know how to do that anymore. They're getting used to it. It's everywhere. It's in your face by this world and the God of this world. Get used to it. There was a time that homosexuality lived in the closet. And when it came out of the closet, it was judged. And now it parades itself down the streets, gets its command in the law offices of the world and in the government of the world. And now it must be respected. And God judges that nasty stuff. It's unclean. And yet, well, as long as it ain't in my house, as long as it ain't in my church, as long as it ain't here. It's just like it's all around us thriving, and yet, as he would say here, it's not really bothering anybody. There was a poll taken once. I jotted down some things about this poll. In this poll of a few thousand people, they said this, 97% of all the people polled believed in God, these church people. All the people polled in the church of some degree or some type, all the people believed in God. 73% of those said they believed in the real existence of God, that he was not just an energy or a force, but he was an entity. He was something real, a person, a being of some sort. And amongst all of them, 34% of them attended church regularly. Well, that's good. Out of the 97% that believed in God, 34% of them attended church to hear about him. But interesting, interesting more is that only 13% of all of those surveyed, 13% said their lives were influenced by the word, that the word had an effect upon their life. 13%. 13%. That means 87% of them, the Bible has no effect on their life at all. And yet many of them attended church. What's wrong with this picture? Is there not something wrong in so-called Christianity when the people profess something they do not believe nor have any interest in, nor are affected morally by? Should it not concern us? Could it happen here? Is it happening here? Is it happening with your children, your family, my family, any of us? Does it happen? And what do we do? I'm not saying we do this. I'm still speaking editorially. What do people do? Well, we've come to a time in life, well, it ain't my problem. Yeah, I ain't my, I ain't my brother's keeper. I got no responsibility for my brothers or sisters in the Lord to stand with them 
with their problem. It ain't my problem. Whose problem is it? What's their problem? So you don't have any involvement in them? No. So with the church is a private place where you go where other people happen to be there. But you're not a part of them because you don't want them to be a part of you. And the Bible is an option. If you want to read it, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. It's not necessary. My dad believed that. He couldn't even read it. 13% of the people said their lives were affected by the word. 13%. 87 out of 100, they don't even know what it said. It didn't matter what it said. And you can see the evidence of that in their lives, in their choices, and in their attitudes. It's not of God. It is not for God. It is not to God. And yet, like he said, they go to church. Listen to this. 97% of them profess belief, but 70% of them said they never read the Bible. Of the 97%, 70% of the 97 said they never read the Bible. Never read it. They got one somewhere in the house. <laughs> they never read the Bible, and 40% of them never give. Can you imagine? Only six out of 10 give. The other 40% have no involvement, obligation, responsibility, nothing, no gratefulness, no thankfulness to God. It's all about me, mine, mine. If I want to, I can. If I don't want to, I don't have to. God loves me anyway. Does he? Does he? Is that the effect the love of God has on you? Is that what happens to man when God loves him? He becomes so full of himself, so iniquitous, so lawless. He's a law unto himself that he does like that. This is a problem. Now, back to where I was going. If this is what's going on today, and if some of this on occasion trickles into the church, and the church is somewhat lethargic and that lazy, and it is not moved to action in some sort of turning to God for this, then what happens to the church? It just declines. We're not talking about the people. The people are good. It's never, these are bad people. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about the people's relationship to God. Something is wrong because no longer are you affected by the things you see, the sinful ways around us, especially when it happens in the church, especially then. Now, as you go back to that verse again in verse 7, this was God's complaint before judgment. There is none that stirreth up himself. There is none that calleth upon thy name. There is none that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. Now, the word stirreth is an interesting word because it's a picture you get of a person who is almost into a deep, wonderful nap on a cool day, very comfortable wherever he is, she is, and, and you're right there, and sleep is just about to fall upon you. We call it being drowsy, and the phone rings. You know the feeling now. Uh, uh, honey, Why are we like that? Because we're sleepy. So this word stirreth is a word that has to do with arousing a person out of a state of indifference how it would be used here. Is there anybody, he said, is there anybody in Israel who would call on the name of the Lord? Oh, God. Is there anybody who stirs up himself, wakens himself, oh, and then takes hold of God for this problem, on account of this problem? Is there anybody that does that? That's what he said. He said, Lord, you've hidden your face from us. Why? Because nobody cares. Lord, we're consumed 
by our iniquities. Nobody is dealing with us about them. We're not dealing with them. We don't care. I got mine. Hope you get yours. God bless you. But he said, there's none that stirreth up himself. What would cause us to stir up ourselves in the New Testament? Well, how many times do you hear the word watch and pray? How many times, like in Luke chapter 21 or Matthew 24, those are end time chapters about the last days and events that are going to happen. Turn to Matthew 24. I do want to look at that one, but Jesus talks about watch and pray that you may be accounted worthy to escape. Remember that? Watch and pray because in Luke's account there, God is describing the events in the last days, what's going to happen. And he says, be sober and be watchful. And then he says, watch and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to enter in. You've got to keep yourself in the place that God brought you. Keep your heart tuned in and right before the Lord. Nothing is more important than this. If it is, you have lost your first love. Because your love is not for the ways of God and for the wonder of it all and the life that is coming, but your love is for what you can get, how you can get it, how much you can enjoy it, and hoping nothing interferes with that. This is why people watch and pray. Listen to Matthew 24, 37. He begins with Noah. This is how Jesus is telling us the way it's going to be. He said, in the last days, it'll be like it was in the days of Noah. Because in verse 38, in the days of Noah, everybody's having a good time. Life was about the good times. Life was not about serving the Lord and enjoying the blessings that he gives. It was just about having a good time, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, doing this and doing that. And they didn't know, verse 39, because they didn't care. They didn't know until Noah entered into the ark. What was about to happen? Listen to me. Does your verse say it will be like that at the end? It's going to be like that at the end. God forbid that it would happen to us here. It can. Oh, God forbid that it would happen to any of you after all these years, after 3,200 sermons, that it would happen. Because it sure doesn't have to. But nobody can make you righteous. Living righteous is a choice. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. It's a choice you make. You don't have to make it, but you better make it. And so he said, after he said about Noah, verse 42, Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord... You better pay attention, he said. But you know this, if the good man of the house had known at what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, be ye also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man is coming. Who is a faithful and wise servant? He's asking you the question as he's asking me the question. Who will be, who will qualify as a faithful and wise servant when the Lord comes? He said, who will he be? Who will be a faithful and wise servant? He said, blessed is a man whom when the Lord comes, will find him doing what he just said, watching, praying, being awake, alert. What do you pray about what you see? Watching and praying doesn't mean, you know, I get up, I look around, and I go, thank you for the world so sweet, thank you for the food we eat, thank you. He doesn't do that, our Father which art in heaven. That's not what he's saying. You watch. God specifically shows us things about ourselves, in our homes, in our church, us, the country, the global condition of the world, which is reeling to and fro here and there, wars and rumors of war, nuclear capability now, it never was ever in history until now, and crazy people want to get their hands on buttons because they don't really care about life. They care about death. Never a time like the hour we're in. Never, ever, ever. In all of history, like right now. And this is an hour 
all the filth, the movies, electronics, the media around the world in moments, seeing, watching, stealing numbers, stealing identities. Never has the decadence of man been more clever and more real than it is now. In the last day now. And in the church you see people falling asleep. Indifferent. Not paying attention. When we watch, we see things. When we see things that are like this, they are supposed to bother us. They're supposed to trouble you and me. Do you hear what I'm saying? We're supposed to be troubled by it. And the troubling, agitated, like when Jesus groaned in his spirit, he was agitated in his spirit. God. Ugh. And the prayer that follows the watching is that we call upon the name of the Lord. We stir ourselves out of complacency and indifference. It ain't my problem. We begin to pray. Let me tell you something. God is answering a lot of people's prayers right now. I was made aware the other day of things that are prayed for have already come to pass, that God is answering prayer. He's sort of like he's up in our intensity in this area, but if people just don't do it. Praying for your family. Praying for your mother, for your dad, for your children. It's still okay to lay hands on that knucklehead's pillow when they're gone to school. And then pray that God will take the knuckle out of their head and make them nice. I mean, they're teenagers. That's not an excuse for driving nuts and crazy. But why do you allow your kid to drive like that? I don't. I did not allow my kid to drive like that. I did not say, take my car and drive crazy. I said, take my car and behave yourself. And they drove crazy. You know why? Because there's a little rebel in there. That's the knuckle. So you pray. I could smack him. If I smack her, I'll go to jail, but I could smack him. No. I pray that God would give me wisdom in talking to this person, that their eyes can be opened. God, visit them. God, visit them. Come down and visit them, O oh, oh Lord. Take hold of God. Who will do that? I need a revelation of this. I can't take hold of God if God is only a concept. I can't take hold of God if to me he's somebody out there unreachable, unfellowshipable. That's a good word. I can't take hold of God if I don't know him. I'm grabbing for a thing. How can you take hold of God unless you have a revelation of him? What does it mean to come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need? What does that mean? Do you have that privilege? Who has the privilege we do to come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need that you might obtain mercy? Sometimes you need it. Sometimes your neighbor needs it. But you can come boldly. I think when you're aware that you can do that or you have had some kind of a experience of the secret place of the Most High, that's the ultimate fellowship where you have sensed God's presence. You can't see him. You can't have a physical relationship. But you know he's there. You can't escape the fact that you know he's there. There's a, almost a fear and trembling all over you. He's there. And yet he's there to listen as well as instruct. People need you to pray. They need you to pray. A whole lot of people's lives and situations and families and well-being of children need us to pray. To appeal to God, oh God, come down like the heavens and make the waters to boil and the heavens to mount and meet us, oh Lord. Oh, God, meet us like that. Because if you don't, if you don't, we're going to stay like this until it's over.
We're going to deal with our little problems. We're going to have our little sermons and our little church meetings. We're going to have our little cliches. Well, I know I should, and I'm trying to. You know what you need? You know what is necessary? A hammer. A hammer. Turn to Jeremiah 23, verse 29. Is not my word like a hammer, like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh in pieces? Does your Bible say something near that, close to that? Now listen, if the effect of the word of God is as it should be, it is like fire, it is like a hammer. It burns. It'll melt the mountains. It'll get your undivided attention. A hammer breaks up things. I have learned, I've come to the conclusion this weekend in thinking about this, that what a lot of people are going to have to have if their life ever changes is not going to church, listening to sermons and fellowshipping and talking about it. They're going to have to be revived by the hammer. God will have to come in and bang like that until you cannot but listen to God and watch after God. There will be weeping and there will be sorrow and anguish of soul because of the rottenness of a man's life and the weaknesses that he tolerates in his life. It comes to the surface as only God can bring trash to the surface. I remember well, and you allow me, the day that God brought my life to the surface and I saw me as I really was, all I could do was weep. That's what God does. I have never, that I can think of, sit down and talk to any man or woman about their problem and then weep like that. This is something only God can do. Sometimes I think I am wasting my time. Sermons ain't doing anything to anybody. Ain't doing anything to anybody. We're not affected by messages. I say we editorially. No, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about Isaiah. Word of God isn't affecting people. You can whisper it. You can read it. Or you can jump up and down and people get up and go out as same as they when they came in. Nothing is happening. They still go out. They still use a bad word. They still drive crazy. They still drink. They still act ugly. They still watch trash. They still run around and all that stuff. Nothing changes. I don't care what you've heard. I don't care how long you've heard it or who you heard it from. I remember thinking just this last couple of weeks about people that heard things 40 years ago. And I just heard recently that, one of the ministers that kind of held on to ministry has had a, a huge big Easter egg hunt at the little church he pastors. Oh, God. Easter egg hunt to the glory of Jesus. That's an abomination. What happened? Who cares? Who prays? I mean, who? if God doesn't invade that man's life and pow, if he doesn't hit that man like he did us, I shall never forget the most important day in my life so far as I was holding on to that pew back there towards the back of the church. I was on that side over there holding on to that pew in my life, like they say before people have accidents or something happens, everything just speeds up. It seemed like every vile and ugly thing I'd ever done or ever said, all the ways, the awful ways I talked, all of that ran by me. And I saw myself for the first time as God sees me. Only God can do that. We need a revival. Your husband needs a revival. Your wife needs a revival. Your children need a revival. 
They need a moment in which God invades their life like a consuming fire. And he comes in, and whether he whispers and hollers, but he comes in with that hammer, and bam, and they never go back. They never change. When God comes in and brings what he brings, and our lives are eternally affected by what he does, we have revival, or we have visitation. And it could be that somebody was holding on to God for that very thing to happen in your life. Or your children's life, your unsaved children would seem to be getting so far away, and yet there is a laboring parent pleading with God for the life of their child. You know why they're pleading? Because they can. You know why they plead? Because they can. The door is open. God says, come in, ask. What you will, it shall be done. The broken heart. The heart that only God can break. My little sermons don't break hearts. Our little counseling sessions don't break hearts. People never change. I've, not much. Not much. We can get so religious that our righteousness is nothing more than casualness. I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about Isaiah 64. About the way those poor people were. Thank God that doesn't apply to us. We can get so casual. Things just don't have any meaning like they used to. You have to find God. The psalmist said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart thou wilt not despise. Would you turn briefly to Psalms 51 for just a moment? I think most of you know that Psalms 51, David writes after his affair with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet confronted him about this. And David, recognizing his sin, confessed it for all of us to read. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He didn't make excuses. Well, I ain't the only one. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. Behold, he said, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin my mother did conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth on the inside and in the hidden part thou hast made me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Verse 17 again, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. This is the heart of a man who had been visited. There's nothing casual about those words. There's nothing slight or easy or light about what we just read. These came from a heart that was troubled and caught. A conscience was finally was brought to bear. And a heart that was poured out before God. And he says, I don't deserve anything good. Have mercy on me, O God. I'm a sinner. And I believe, because I've been there once. I was there, right there, the same way once. I saw what he saw in my life. And when God turned me around that day, there's never been a desire, not even a little desire, to go back. And when people linger and they say, well, I love the Lord, but then I hear this stuff, I think, you don't know the Lord. You don't. I like you. I think you're good. I'm, I'm talking about them. That's what the prophet would say to Isaiah 64. I like you people. You're really good. Good to be around. You've got a good heart about people and loving things. but you need to surrender your life to God. 
Otherwise, we're going to live in a lethargic state where our praise is nothing more than little patty cakes. We've learned all the songs. I'm talking about them now. Then we'd go through the little motions, and Brother Hamilton does his little sermon, and then we have our little meeting, and we have our little doorway, and we get in our little cars and go to our little houses. Isn't there more than this? Isn't there more? Should it not be more intense than that? Should there not be more joy in that? Shouldn't going to a meeting where you get some relief from the the stuff out there and get to be with the saints, shouldn't it be a time of joy? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Shouldn't it be like that? What if it's not? I'm just a poor wayfaring straggler. Ain't doing very good. Don't know if I really want to or if I could, how I get to. You need a visit. You need the hammer of life to fall on you. You need for God to invade your serenity and your dead state and bring that hammer in there and drop that hammer, like you said, and break in pieces all that junk in your life and let godly sorrow lead you to repentance. Oh, God. Oh, God. Awake me out of my sleep. Make me to know righteousness. Put the joy of the Lord in my heart, and may I come before you at this once or twice a week and release my joy with my brethren. For our grateful hearts we sing unto thee all the wonder of it all. That's better than a lot of stuff I hear. I'm talking about Isaiah and the people in Israel. Oh, it could be better. It just could be better. When you find the Lord, everything begins to make sense. Your life changes. Faith makes sense. Well, of course you trust the Lord. You can't see him. Well, that's how you know you trust him. Holiness makes sense. Well, you got to live clean. My heart's changed. I don't have it in my heart to see if I can do that and get, I don't have that anymore. I want to live right. You want to live a holy, committed life. Everything makes sense. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I've commanded you. Why? That it may be well with you. And I will be your God. I won't be far away. You won't have to wonder where I am. I will be right there beside you, with you. Encouraging you, blessing you, and keeping you. One last verse, Proverbs 8. If you'll turn there, we will close. Verse 34, blessed is the man that heareth me. Can we? Well, somebody can. Okay. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. For whoso findeth me, findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. I want that. I want that in Jesus' name. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, let it be so that your words can draw us away from self and unto you. Give us a heart that can meditate and ponder what we have heard. And better yet, Lord, anoint the word so that it is clear as though you stood here and said it in their ears. God, deliver us from the deadness of this age, from the spiritual weariness that seems to be everywhere. Deliver us from casual righteousness. Make us to burn, Lord, be on fire. You said, 
Heavenly Father, Jesus said he would that we would be hot or cold. Make us hot. Make us to burn with desire and joy to release this within us that wants to worship and praise. We ask you to do it. I ask you to do it. Never leave us alone, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God's going to do some wonderful things this year. He is. He's going to do some good things. It'll be good.